How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in our study, let's uh, take a few moments for silent prayer. Scripture teaches that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. When there is unconfessed sin in the life, then this means that we have broken fellowship with God and the ongoing sanctifying ministry, growth-producing ministry of God the Holy Spirit is stifled. And it is only when we uh, confess our sins, First John 1, 9, that we're back in fellowship and we can move forward walking by the Spirit instead of by the flesh. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we have the time to come together to study your word, to be encouraged by the truth of your word, that God the Holy Spirit can use this in our own lives to challenge our thinking, to perhaps shake us up a little bit in terms of what we believe and how we believe it and how we implement what we believe. Father, we pray that as we study your word today, that as we look at this epistle in Jude and we begin to focus on the primary message of this epistle to contend or to fight for the truth, that we might, or for the faith, that we might come to understand how important that is in our own lives and how foundational this is to everything else because it fits within the overall framework of spiritual warfare that within our own soul there's a constant struggle for the faith that are we going to live according to human viewpoint or divine viewpoint. So, Father, challenge us as we study your word in this class. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are continuing our study in Jude, and last time we made it in to, toward the end of the, of the opening salutation. Jude begins indicating the author, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. He was also his half-brother. They had the same mother, Mary, but different fathers. Jude was born of a human father. Jesus was not. Uh, bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. James was the other half-brother of, uh, of Jesus, also the author of the epistle of James. To those who are called, sanctified, that is, in terms of uh, their phase one sanctification, so he's addressing believers here, and that, which is very important, understanding that they have been set apart uh, by God in terms of their salvation and they are also preserved in Jesus Christ, which relates to the doctrine of eternal security, that every believer is saved eternally, that, we, that everything that happens at that instant of faith alone in Christ alone is not because we believe, but it is through faith. It is because of God's love and his mercy that he saved us. That's clear from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, that it is because of God's love and mercy that he saves us, and through our faith. So that's the intermediate means. And we believe in Jesus. We believe through faith in Jesus Christ, not of works, and therefore we have uh, eternal salvation. It's not taken from us. God keeps us, holds us in his hands, as we studied last time. Jesus keeps us, preserves us, us holds us in his hands. And then we have the salutation and address to the recipients in verse 2. They are not identified in terms of their geographical location or their ethnicity. We know from the content of this epistle that they must be uh, Jewish believers in Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, as the uh, Messiah of Israel. He says in this address, uh, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you, mercy, peace, and love be multi- multiplied to you. And this seems to be a fairly stereotypical formula that you find at the beginning of any number of letters in the ancient world. 
But I believe that because of Scripture that teaches that that every word, every part of speech, every letter is indeed significant and breathed out by God, that this isn't just happenstance that we have uh, the, these uh, salutations written the way they are, and they do differ. Uh, last time we looked at some of the other ones, for example, in uh, Romans 1-7, grace and peace are mentioned. 1 Corinthians 1-2, 1, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1-1 1, uh, 1 mentions grace and peace. 2 Thessalonians 1-1 1, 1, uh, also uh, addresses, notice it identifies the church. First uh, Peter one two and Second Peter one two both indicate grace and peace, but in this particular uh, salutation, there's no mention of grace. There's variation. This indicates that there is something uh, a little different. This is Jude's style. It indicates his personality, uh, whereas Peter and Paul use slightly different variants. But what we also must understand is that because of the principle of the dual authorship of Scripture that there is a a person and a force, uh, not that the Holy Spirit's an impersonal force, but he is the one who is overseeing the process of inspiration. We'll get into that a little later in this lesson. But because of his role in inspiration, this is not just a choice, simply a random uh, stylistic choice by the writer of Scripture. We live in a world today where there is a tendency among scholars, even those who profess to believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, that differences like this are not significant doctrinally, but they are simply stylistic differences. And I think this exposes a weakness in, the, in people's thinking, is that their first option when there's a, a difference in Scripture or distinction in some places, is to go with, well, this is just his personality, this is just his style. But if we believe in inerrancy, that every word of Scripture is inspired by God, and in places that word is chosen as opposed to another word, then what this means for us is that there is something going on here that is uh, perhaps uh, unique to this particular epistle, something that reveals uh, something or foreshadow something in the epistle since it comes at the beginning. And that there's a reason that mercy is chosen rather than, rather than grace. And so our first option should always be when we see these kinds of similarities and differences should be to ask the question, is there a reason why there would be a difference? And then we have to look meticulously at the context of the passage to see if there might not be a reason for this distinction and only go to the stylistic variation uh, at the end. And so we see this, this mercy mentioned here, and mercy is the application of grace. And that particularly fits the context of Jude because whereas Second uh, Peter is foreshadowing and predicting a coming time when false teachers would come and disrupt the church. Jude's basic mention is they're here, contend for the faith. And so the church, the congregation, the believers that he's addressing here are already in the battle. And so they need mercy, which is grace in action, and mercy carries a, an overtone of genuine compassion for those who are in uh, difficult uh, circumstances. As I pointed out, there, the, this is a, uh, these formulas are, are, are common in the ancient world, although these terms are just a little bit, or tend to be just a little bit different. Now this first word that is used here that's translated mercy is an interesting word. It's a Greek word, elias, and if you're Jewish, the word you would associate this with from the Old Testament is the word chesed. Because most of the time, it is Elias that is the uh, Greek translation in the Septuagint for the word Chesed, and Chesed has to do with God's faithful, loyal, loyal love, and it's it's more than grace, which is a different word. It's in the Hebrew, and Chesed, although it relates to grace, has to do with God's constancy, His faithfulness to the objects of His love. Uh, even when they don't deserve it. So it's more application 
uh, more application uh, oriented than uh, than the word grace is. Grace sort of refers to the basic principle, whereas mercy refers to its application, and it brings into focus the fact that that those who are the recipients uh, don't deserve it. They are desperately in need of that grace because of their circumstances. So the idea of mercy tells us something about the negative circumstances of someone um, someone in need of this. Uh, the concept of grace in Greek usage, as it had developed over the years, is a word that implied a favor that was freely done. It's motivated out of uh, a person's own character. It's not done uh, in return for something, and it's not done in order to gain something. It is done without claim or any expectation uh, of any kind of return. It is a free gift. Uh, mercy then emphasizes that freeness of that gift to man, but it emphasizes that they are already in desperate need of that grace. It emphasizes or brings into focus the, the, the fact that they're spiritually dead or the consequences of their sin or they're going through some sort of, of struggle or desperate uh, situation. So Elias brings into focus the immediate circumstances or situations or consequences that a, per, a person may be in related to the consequences of, of sin. The second word, reine peace, is a word that indicates a couple of different things. It indicates our theologically our peace with God. That is the fact that we are at one with God because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But in this context, it is a word that is used addressing believers who are already uh, already have that peace with God because they are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That uh, aspect of enmity or hostility between the unbeliever and the and God has been completely removed. They are at one in harmony. But the verb here that that is used is the word uh, uh, plethuno. Uh, plethuno is in the optative mood, which is a mood we normally don't ever talk about because it's only 70 verbs in the New Testament are in the optative mood. It's similar to the subjunctive mood. It's sort of the mood of, of possibility or the mood uh, expressing a desire or a wish uh, that's been taken is in gr- the development of the Greek language that's being taken over by the subjunctive more and more. So it's fading out. But when we find it, it expresses a wish. So what James is really saying here is may mercy, peace and love be multiplied. And it's a passive, which means that something that they're receiving and the one who is performing the action is not stated, but that would be God. This is an expression of a prayer. And so it, it expresses his desire that God would be working in their life to experientially sanctify them. Remember, peace is mentioned in Galatians 5.22 as a fruit of the Spirit, so that this is uh, not simply the aspect of reconciliation here, but is related also to the ongoing stability in the believer's life, his state of mind that he has peace, that is calm, tranquility, because he is resting in the provision and the power of God. This is a provision of the uh, or a fruit of God, the Holy Spirit. So it sets the context again in terms of uh, experiential sanctification. We're talking about principles in this epistle related to the believer's growth. May he grow by means or on the basis of God's mercy because we live in the devil's world and we are in dire circumstances. May we grow in peace that despite the struggles that are around us and the conflicts and chaos around us, we may remain relaxed and calm, trusting in God and seeking his power to survive and to deal with circumstances around us. And then love understanding God's love, growing in our love for him, which is based on the word of God, Second Peter 3.18, we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it, too, is a progressive 
or experiential concept here, not one that is related to phase one uh, sanctification or justification, and tells us that what the focus of this letter uh, or foreshadows would be a better way of putting it, that the focus of this letter is going to be on that that ongoing sanctification aspect. Peter uses this same word in his salutations in 1 Peter 1-2. In 2 Peter 1-2, he says, Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Um, and in 2 Peter 1-2, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Again, the emphasis, see, for Peter is that grace and peace, we only grow and mature on the basis of knowledge, not on the basis of experience, not on the basis of emotion, not on the basis of singing uh, hymns and choruses and having feel-good experiences at church. It is on the basis of learning about God and about Jesus Christ and then converting that knowledge, that information, into uh, into transformed thinking and transformed, uh, transformed living. Now, in Jude chapter, Jude verse three, rather, we come into the main body of the epistle with an introduction to the reason that he is writing, and he explains his that he start he really wanted to write about something else. But there was a compulsion. There was something that was happening internally within his own mind. And as he came to understand the circumstances of his readers, that he uh, wrote instead about something different. He was originally going to write to them about their common salvation, a phrase that is only used here in this epistle. But uh, the idea seems to be that he wanted to write initially about all that is involved in their salvation, their justification, etc. But he doesn't do that because God the Holy Spirit is overshadowing him. And in this, this ministry of God the Holy Spirit in the life of a writer of Scripture, he is being compelled to write in a different direction. And so we're, we get a little bit of a, uh, an interesting window here where we can look at what happened in the life of a writer of Scripture as God the Holy Spirit is moving on them uh, to bring them to write that which God the Holy Spirit uh, wants them to, to write. And so this comes across in the introduction here. He starts off with this word, beloved, which is an unusual word, and because it's used here, there are those who, as I pointed out in verse 1, there was a uh, textual problem between the majority text and the critical text. Critical texts and some older manuscripts took the word beloved by God uh, in verse 1. But this is an unusual word that is applied to believers uh, in the Scriptures. It's not rare. I mean, it's rare, but it's not uh, it's not, it's not that it's never used, it's just unusual. And so it'd be doubly uh, unusual for this to be used twice in this text, which is why I emphasize the fact of sanctification by God the Father as the, as the most likely reading of verse one rather than beloved. He uses it as simply a title of endearment to his audience, emphasizing his own care. Uh, for them, this is an expression of pastoral care. This is pastoral love, is emphasizing the faith, emphasizing what we believe, why we believe it, and how it makes a difference in the way we live. So he addresses them as beloved. They are beloved by him. They are beloved by God because they are saved and in the family of God. And then he uses a an uh, interesting phrase uh, that comes up, that um, combination of words. The key word is spude, which means haste, speed, diligence, perseverance, willingness, zeal. It's the word that the uh, King James originally translated uh, when we read, uh, study to show thyself approved unto God. The study there is really uh, spudazo, which is the uh, verb form, and it means to be diligent. And the focus there is on the object of the diligence in that passage is on the word, 
the Word of God. So the the way in which one is diligent towards the Word of God would be studying. So that is why it is translated in that particular way, picking up the the, the uh, nuance there of, of spudazo. And here we have the noun form, uh, which means that we are to make or to do all diligence. We have a present participle of poieo, which simply means to do or to make. So it's a, a temporal participle here, which has the idea of um, of when, since it's a present tense, it, it relates to its present time. When I was uh, I was making all diligence to uh, to write to you. And the idea here is not that he's already started to write, but he's thinking about it. He's formulating his, his thoughts. He's in preparation to write an epistle to these uh, readers. And while he is making that preparation, then God the Holy Spirit impresses something else upon his mind. So he starts off saying that I, uh, while I was very diligent to write or I was... Um, I was making diligence or I was uh, uh, making speed to write to you concerning our common salvation. So it's a soteriological message. He then says, I found it necessary to write to you. So he changes course before he writes about their common salvation. He uses a combination of words here in the phrase, I found it necessary, he uses the verb echo, which means to have something, to hold on to something. So if we could translate it idiomatically as I found, but literally it would be translated I had or I have a necessity. I have a necessity or I am under compulsion or I found it necessary. All that communicates the same idea. There is this overwhelming compulsion or necessity. He doesn't say, the Holy Spirit spoke to me, or I felt a rumbling on the inside, or a quiver in my liver. He just, there's this compulsion as the more he thinks about it, the more the Holy Spirit directs his thinking in a particular course of action. And so he says, I found it necessary. Now this word, ananke, which is uh, when you have that GK combination in, in Greek or GG, it's usually was pronounced with an NG like in angelos. There's no N there, but when the combination of, of those hard gutturals, uh, usually there's a softening through the introduction of an N. Ananke indicates discipline in, in the verb, uh, self-discipline. So there's a compulsion here, a discipline uh, behind this that is uh, being emphasized. So he says, I had a compulsion, I had a necessity uh, to write to you, uh, exhorting you, exhorting you. This is parakaleo uh, in a participial form, uh, to write to you by, a, 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 by exhorting you. And so this is the, um, this sense of, um, of, uh, of this participle here is to challenge them with something. The word exhortation is a word that kind of loses its its uh, sense here today. We don't use it a whole lot, but it actually actually means to challenge someone to a specific course of action. So that's why he's writing. This is very similar to to Hebrews. Hebrews is written as an exhortation, as a challenge to believers to take a certain course of action, and so it's action oriented. But before you get to the action part. There has to be an understanding of why the action is necessary. And he spends much of the epistle focusing on why the action is necessary. So he says here, I found it necessary to write to you, or I was under compulsion to write to you that uh, to challenge you to do something. So the challenge is to do something, uh, something specific. And that is expressed then in the uh, purpose infinitive here. It's a present active infinitive of the verb ep agonizomai, ep agonizomai. Now, that's a compound word, agonizomai, where we get our word agony, to agonize, was a word that was often used 
some of you may think appropriately so, in a, for athletic competitions. It emphasizes the putting everything you have into the effort. The, it, it, it emphasizes discipline. It, it, it brings into the focus uh, time management, time discipline. It brings into the focus uh, making something a priority that is uh, more important than m- anything else in life. Uh, it brings into focus the fact that it's going to be tough. There, there are going to be challenges that are going to be overcome. There are going to be times when you feel defeated and you feel like you shouldn't go forward. There are going to be times when, when you feel like, um, like you just can't get it all together. You just can't accomplish it. And, and yet you're going to stick with it and you are going to go through the struggle, the fight, the, uh, the, the competition and contend earnestly or fight vigorously for something. And the P that's added as a preposition to the main word agonizo indicates that you're, you're, you are struggling for something specific and that is expressed as, as the faith. Now one commentator, Edmund Hebert, uh, uh, writes regarding ep- agonizomai, says that it was also used more generally of any conflict, contest, or debate, or lawsuit. So it has to do with competition. It has to do with debate, who's going to win the argument. It has to do with um, a lawsuit, who's going to win in court. Uh, so there is a struggle behind it. He says it uh, is used of any co- uh, conflict, contest, debate, or lawsuit involved is the thought of the expenditure of all of one's energy in order to prevail. And so the challenge for us is how much energy are we putting into contending for the faith? Now, I'm going to give you some examples of contending for the faith, but I think there are three areas in which we contend for the faith. First of all, we contend for the faith in terms of our own personal spiritual life. There is always a struggle going on in the spiritual life between the sin nature and the walking by God the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul talks about in his epistle to the Galatians in Galatians 5, uh, 16 down through 23. We are to walk by means of the Spirit, and when we do so, we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And so there is always this struggle, human viewpoint, divine viewpoint, walking by the flesh, walking by the Holy Spirit, doing it my way or doing it God's way. So the first arena in which we struggle for the faith is in terms of our own personal focus, our own personal commitment to the word of God and to learning the word of God and following and applying uh, the Word of God. Is this going to be my priority? Am I going to do everything I can to truly understand what the Word of God says, what it means, and how it applies to whatever it may be that I face in life? Now, in life today, we face uh, different kinds of challenges. We face challenges from uh, from our own sin nature. We face challenges from perhaps from family members or friends who think perhaps you're a little bit strange because of your interest in the Bible. Uh, we face a challenge from our culture, which is going increasingly hostile to biblical Christianity and to those who believe in biblical Christianity. We are consistently marginalized, no matter how, how accurate our scholarship is, no matter how in-depth the teaching is. We're just ignored because uh, you people believe God actually spoke to us or that there actually is a God. That's not very intellectual, so uh, uh, why spend any time thinking uh, or re- uh, uh, regarding anything that, that you people, you fundamentalists, our evangelicals believe you just uh, you're going to believe it. It's just superstitious. You have no mind. So we have to be able to answer those arguments, not necessarily publicly, but you have to answer them in your own mind because your little sin nature is going to grab hold of those things in moments of struggle and moments of doubt, as 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 a rationalization foundation for not obeying God. So we have to come to understand this struggle in our own soul and decide where our priorities are. 
And if our priority is the Word of God, then that means more than just saying that. That means changing how we structure our day. It means changing how we structure our week. It means sometimes changing where we live so that we can be uh, in a place where God the Holy Spirit can teach and train us under a pastor-teacher in a congregation. Now, that's not always possible for people to change their geographical location. We live in an age today where it's harder and harder for people to find a local church that they can uh, go to just to be a part of a local body of believers and then use um, various media formats to just um, uh, teach them and train them while they're still in uh, an acceptable congregation. Uh, The Word of God teaches that the normative pattern for the believer is to be assembled with other believers. And so it is not normative to be a Lone Ranger believer and doing it on your own. But unfortunately, that becomes a reality in a society that is becoming increasingly hostile and negative to the Word of God. Uh, some years ago, in teaching about the importance of being a, involved in a local church, I had a young father uh, email me, lived in a small town, and he said, he said, Pastor, I really want to be, have taken to heart what you've said about, um, about being involved in a local church. I think it's important for that example to be set for my children. And so I, I've, I've gone to the four or five different churches that are in my local town there, and, and the best of them is just extremely liberal. And I said, well, then there's not really an option. You can't go to any of those churches. Uh, there, there is a point where it is, where you just have to say, no, there's nothing there. But I find that too many people want every I dotted and every T crossed, and it's easy to say, well, they sing a couple of different songs I don't like, or there's some people there who are just a little bit too soft mystical for me, and I'm not comfortable with that. But they're not really focused on the fact that, that, uh, a lot of what is going on may be extremely basic. It may be pablum. It may be baby food. They may be going to a, not even a kindergarten. They're in preschool, uh, some kind of a preschool church where everything is, is taught at an extremely basic, uh, level. Nevertheless, it's not necessarily bad and there's opportunities for, for ministry there. But that's harder today because the trend as we'll see in our study today, the reason that Jude is writing this is because of verse 4. He says, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. There are false teachers amongst us, and the church, the evangelical church, even the so-called fundamentalist church, those who believe in the foundational beliefs, of uh, historical beliefs of Christianity, are falling by the wayside because of the influence of postmodernism because of the influence of our culture, moral relativism, and so it's harder and harder to find a church that is sticking to the foundations of the faith, as Jude puts it, which was once for all delivered uh, to the saints. And so we have to recognize that uh, we, we, it's a struggle. So that first area of struggle is within our own mind. The second area of struggle is in terms of the church, perhaps. We have to make sure that the church is contending for the faith. Uh, we do that without being contentious. We do that without challenging the pastor on uh, on every minutia of doctrine. Not that that's a problem that, that I face here, but I've, I've faced it before, where if you don't, say, use this synonym and instead you use that synonym, then, then somebody gets their... Uh, uh, their panties in a knot, and so they have to go somewhere else that where the person's going to have the right precise vocabulary in their opinion. Uh, you know, I always laugh about people like that because if you look at the scriptures, you see that that Paul doesn't use John's vocabulary, John doesn't use Paul's vocabulary, Jude doesn't use Peter's vocabulary. There's similarities. P- Jude certainly doesn't use Paul's vocabulary. So there's not one set of terminology that is the right set of terminology. In fact, what I found is that people get so rigid about terminology and they just get wrapped up and tied up, uh, wound up too tight over this, that they can't communicate to people. Because they, when, when you communicate to them in just basic, general, accepted, 
biblical, theological, Christian terms, then they have to restate it in some kind of uh, uh, theological jargon that may not get the point, that when they're talking to an unbeliever, they use uh, theological terms and concepts they're familiar with, but the unbeliever has no clue what they're talking about. They have to be able to learn how to state what they believe in a number of different ways, and that a lot of times that just comes from practice. I know I've gone through that adjustment myself where you have to learn how to say things in a way that the person uh, can grasp it with it in terms of his own education, his own background, his own frame of reference, and not try to fit somebody into a, uh, into a mold. So there's a contending for the faith in terms of a con- congregation and keeping your church, your congregation, making sure you are that's straight and on course. And, and uh, sometimes uh, if they're going to go in a wrong direction, then the, the then the response is just quietly get up and leave and go somewhere else, not to uh, cause a ruckus uh, at the church because uh, there's something going on that may be wrong or maybe just that you think it's wrong. Uh, the other area of contending for the faith is toward the culture itself, toward the culture itself, not letting the culture bully us and intimidate us uh, into being afraid to take a stand for the truth. That has happened historically innumerable times in different cultures, and it is usually uh, is a foreshadowing of the final stages uh, within uh, the, the history of Christianity in that particular in that particular nation. We are to contend, but not this is a word indicating a struggle, but we are not to contend contentiously. We are to have the fruit of the spirit. Uh, exhibited in how we address things uh, when it comes to uh, the culture or the local church. We do not want to say things in a way that is dishonorable uh, and reflects poorly upon uh, ourselves, upon what we believe, and upon the Lord. We are contending, James says, for the faith. When you have, a ter- have terminology like this in the, uh, in the Scripture, and there's the emphasis of contending for the faith. Faith is a term that, that not only means uh, believing in something where the noun is a, what the, what's grammarians call a noun of action that expresses what the, uh, uh, expresses the action of believing something, trusting in something, uh, saying that something is true, that we have a, um, uh, we also have the word used to refer to the body of uh, the, or the content of what we believe. And so it comes to mean the faith. And we speak of, uh, of uh, the faith of Judaism or the faith of Christianity or the faith of, of uh, Roman Catholicism or the faith of uh, Presbyterianism. And we ask people sometimes, well, what is your faith? It's what is your body of belief? What do you believe in? And so that is how the word is used here. In, in this verse, it has to do with faith. Now, uh, in the English, it's translated with a, with an article because that picks up the sense in the Greek. It is a qualitative distinction though. However, there's no the in, in, in the Greek. In the Greek, we just simply have the, de- uh, uh, excuse me. Uh, we do have an article there. It's a, um, the article comes a couple of words earlier. In the Greek, and the article indicates that this is a specific set of beliefs, and it is a set of beliefs that is once for all delivered to the saints. The word "once for all" is the Greek word "hapax," used also of the atonement. It's once for all; it has already been given. It is a set body of beliefs. It's not something that is evolving. Now, sometimes uh, we talk about, and Christians and theologians talk about the development of doctrine. And they're not talking about how, how what we believe changed or evolved from, let's say, apples to oranges, but how uh, we, our understanding of what the Bible taught became more and more refined and clear over time. Uh, doctrine, there's a development of our doctrinal understanding or our understanding of what the Bible teaches, which is not the same as saying that the doctrine, the body of faith itself changes. That's the same. It's given once for all uh, to the saints. 
So we have a um, set body of belief that's given to the saints. Now, when we I got into this verse, I said this gives us an interesting little window, an interesting little window into uh, the process of inspiration and how the human writer of Scripture is brought to a point of writing Scripture. And Jude talks about it from his own experience. And his experience was that as he heard about uh, some of the things that were going on in this congregation that he's addressing, that he thought that uh, he would write to them about their common salvation. So he had a more soteriological focus. Maybe he was going to focus on understanding what happened soteriologically and the impact of that on our spiritual life, but he doesn't clarify. Uh, but he had one idea in mind, and then as he was thinking that through, God the Holy Spirit began to work on him from sort of the background uh, and he began to realize that as he thought about it and as the Holy Spirit is moving him, which is what the, the terminology we find in Second uh, Peter 1, uh, 20, uh, 20, 21, is that the holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is that unseen force that's moving upon and influencing his thinking. Uh, and so this helps us to understand something about the process of how Scripture was communicated, and this is extremely important because it is the foundational doctrine. As Jude tells us, we have to contend earnestly for the faith. So when you think of the faith, what are the essentials of the faith? And that might be a good question for you to think about. Go home, talk to your friends, go out for coffee afterwards. What would you say are the essentials to the faith? Is it an essential to the faith? to uh, believe that the battle of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel uh, 38 and 39 occurs before the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation. Is that essential to the faith? I don't think so. I know most scholars, even dispensationalists who believe have firm convictions, aren't as convinced of that uh, as they are of other things. Uh, is the Trinity a necessary foundation or necessary, necessary essential to the faith? Can you explain the Trinity to someone else? Can you explain the Trinity to someone who doesn't really believe in the Trinity in a way where you could, to the best of your ability, uh, try to convince them or persuade them uh, that this is what the Bible teaches? Uh, this is what we mean by the foundation of the faith, the, the, this faith that is once for all delivered to the saints. So what are those, what are those foundational things? And the foundation of the foundation, I believe, is our understanding of the Bible. This goes to the very issue of authority. Who, what, wh- where does truth come from? How do we know something is true? How do we know something is is accurate? How do we know something is absolute? So this relates to the study of the Bible, the origin and the transmission of the text. This is what is referred to in theology as bibliology, that is the study of the Bible, the science of the study of the Bible, the theology of the Bible. And in bibliology, uh, various questions are asked about the Bible. For example, we ask, how was the Bible revealed? How was this information revealed? How does the Bible tell us that Moses or Joshua or uh, Daniel or Matthew or John or Luke or Paul received the information that they then communicate in a written form to uh, their generation and subsequent generations? How was the Bible revealed? Is it a dictation? Uh, is it something like we find in the cults of Mo- uh, Islam or Mormonism where you have somebody who's just uh, taken aside into a cave or someplace like that and somebody dictates it or gives it to them? Uh, in the case of Joseph Smith in Mormonism, he's given a special set of glasses that allows him to translate uh, this text from a foreign language that he doesn't know. Uh, where everything within the Book of Mormon, everything in the Book of Islam is basically given 
uh, to one person over one time. In contrast, what we have in the Bible is that God reveals the truth of his word to over 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years minimal, maybe longer depending on how far back the book of Job goes. It could be 2,000 years. And these 40-plus authors coming from many different walks of life, some were uh, commercial fishermen like uh, Peter and John, Others were, were had a less socially acceptable uh, job, such as Matthew, who was a tax collector employed by the uh, hated Romans. You have Daniel, who's a, a government administrator. He rises through the ranks of the bureaucracy in both uh, the Babylonian and the uh, Persian Empire to be uh, uh, second or third only to the only to the king. You have others who are kings. You have David, who's a shepherd, later a king. You have Joshua, who's a general. You have Moses, who is a leader of his people, a man who had been previously trained to be the pharaoh of Egypt. You have many different backgrounds. Some came from uh, and, and many different cultures. Uh, for example, the culture of, of, of uh, Asia Minor, Turkey, where Paul grew up in Tarsus. Or you have the culture of uh, uh, uh Israel, the culture of Egypt, the culture of Mesopotamia, for example, this is where uh, Esther was in Persia. So you have different cultural influences, and yet you have 40-plus authors writing over a 1,500 to 2,000-year period, and they don't disagree on any of the subjects that they address, which are the most controversial subjects spoken to man. In contrast, these other, quote, holy books, like uh, Book of Mormon book and uh, the Quran, are given in toto to one individual. And uh, that just ought to be, raise our suspicions to begin with. So uh, the question is, how is the Bible revealed? Another question, are there errors in the Bible? Is the Bible just myth and legend? You'll hear that a lot. A book recently came out and was published on Jerusalem, and I like to read different books on the history of Jerusalem by a lot of different authors. It's written by Simon Sebag uh, Montefiore. Just uh, the other day I watched a uh, um <clears throat> book notes, one of these uh, things on C-SPAN where they're, uh, it's a, uh, the author speaking to a group in a bookstore in Washington, D.C., talking about the book. I've read about the first 150 pages yet. I'm just up to, I've gone through his uh, uh, history of Jerusalem. He, he tells a story of Jerusalem through key people, so it's called Jerusalem, the biography. And he starts off with like David, Moses, David in the Old Testament, but he's not sure about their historicity. Uh, he's especially when it gets back to Abraham and a lot of things that happened. He questions that. He has no respect for the Bible. He'll say, um, for example, he comes out and says, "We needed a objective history." And then he talks about the fact that Jerusalem is so everything is upsets so many people. Uh, it's so controversial. Uh, we needed to have objectivity. So what's his source of objectivity? That's my question. Um, does he have a frame, frame of reference where he can be objective? Is he willing to say that, that what his presuppositional framework is? Uh, everybody, nobody can be objective. They, they can try. They can approach objectivity at times. But if you've already rejected truth, and you're now redefining truth, and you're the ultimate source of truth, then you really can't be objective. And he makes these statements. It's a wonderfully written book. I mean, this guy's a world-class author. He's been nominated for numerous literary prizes and awards, and it's a great read, and it challenges your vocabulary because uh, I have to look up a, a new word every three or four pages at least, and it's just... Um, it's just really good, and there are a lot. And he's a great storyteller. It's captivating. But uh, just as a simple example of how he how he makes himself an ultimate authority on determining things, uh, not even related to the Bible, he's quoting Josephus about during the time of Christ that at Passover, Josephus said about two and a half million people would come to Jerusalem during Passover, and he says, of course, that can't be true. Why can't it be true? Josephus said it was true. Is he lying about it? Why would Josephus lie about it? He doesn't address that. He just says this possibly can't be true. And then three sentences later he says, and in Jerusalem at Passover they would sacrifice 256,000 lambs. Where did he get that number? Josephus. See, Josephus said they sacrificed around 256,000 lambs on Passover, 
And according to the rabbinical tradition, a household was 10. And so if you just multiply 10 times 256,000, you come out with 2.5 million people. So he doubts one number and accepts the other number. Why? On what basis? What's his? You have to learn to think critically about these things. And and uh, he, he makes a number of other uh, statements like that throughout throughout the book. That doesn't mean people shouldn't read it. I think it's really good for people to read something like this from somebody that is going to make a lot of erroneous statements to just test your thinking, challenge your thinking. Don't read it and underline a bunch of stuff and then come run to me and say, is this, is this right? Is this right? Figure it out for yourself. Go back and listen to this, some of the things I've taught in these areas. But we should be able to read things and not be like the person who says, oh, I just don't read anything because I might pick up a wrong idea. Uh, we are in the world, but we're not of the world. So we have to learn to think critically. And the only way to think critically is to have an absolute framework of truth that we can judge and evaluate everything by. And so we have to really know the truth. And that means we have to uh, contend for it. We have to agonize for it. We have to make that a priority in our life uh, to know the truth. So we ask these questions about the Bible. Can we have a conviction that this is true? How is the Bible revealed? Are there errors in the Bible? Uh, when we ask the question of the errors, there are two kinds of errors. One is an error of authorship where the author wrote down false information. His historical facts were wrong. His scientific facts were wrong. His uh, geographical facts were wrong. His ethical facts were wrong, something like that. That's an error of authorship. And then the second kind of error is an error of transmission. Uh, the original author wrote everything down, and it was ac- accurate and perfect without error. But then when it was copied two or three centuries down the road, a uh, word got left out or an additional word or phrase got put in by a scribe in the margin as an explanation, then some scribe later on inserted that into the text. These are called errors of transmission. It would be the same kind of thing as if I stood up here and dictated a letter to the congregation, and everybody wrote down what I dictated, and at the end I took up all, all of them, threw away my original, and discovered that some people had left out words, others had added words, some words were misspelled, uh, and, but could we then reconstruct the original by looking at these you know, 90, 100, 120 copies? Sure we could. Uh, that's called textual criticism. And you can easily recover uh, the original in, by understanding the science involved in uh, textual criticism. Sometimes it's, you can't reach 100% accuracy, but you're pretty close. Uh, it's a very different, very different to start with a perfect original than to start with an imperfect original. Because it's, if you're 2,000 years down the line, you can't get back to a reasonable facsimile of the perfect original if there never was a perfect original. And so this is very significant. Our uh, critics make fun of us. Uh, oh, inerrancy in the original documents. That's what they say. Oh, you're just splitting hairs. No, it's really important. If the original is perfect, then you can get a, back to a reasonable facsimile of that. But the, if the original was imperfect, how imperfect was it? You can never get to a perfect original. So a very important question. We need to ask questions like what was the means of inspiration? Did God dictate scriptures? This is the, uh, this is a view that you have of some people and how they handle the text. Is it something that was purely an act of the human author so that the Bible then would only contain the word of God or is there uh, dual authorship? Uh, and at the, the, the bottom line on all of this is the issue of biblical authority. And so for the, really for the last, uh, the last 200 years in church history in the West, this has been the major, uh, major battleground. Uh, this started in the early 19th century. Actually, you can trace elements of it back into the 17th century where certain pastors began to question doctrines in Scripture during the Enlightenment because it didn't fit their reason. Uh, so their rational processes questioned how could, the, how could God become a man? I don't understand. How can God heal a leper? I don't, how could Jesus heal a leper? I don't understand. So because they couldn't understand it or give a rational explanation to it, they began to doubt it. I can't understand three in one. Uh, so this, this just, we'll just throw out, 
the deity of Christ, and so began to erode uh, scripture. By the 19th century, this this type of thinking, the rationalism from the Enlightenment, began to uh, bear its its evil fruit in what became known as 19th century liberal theology, also known as higher criticism, also known as German rationalism, also known as modernism. And this was the big phrase at the beginning of the 20th century, and it was known as the modernist fundamentalist controversy. But modernism, theological liberalism, higher criticism, uh, uh, religious rationalism, all of these... uh, have the same kind of um, same kind of thinking and the same foundation. Now, um, one of the words that's used to describe conservative biblicists—I like that term—conservative biblicists who believe that the Bible is the infallible, inerrant Word of God—is the term fundamentalism. Now, the term fundamentalism did not come into use until the 1920s. But the facts of uh, what we call fundamentalism, Christian fundamentalism, were there going back all the way to the Bible, all the way to the first century and beyond. But within the history of American Christianity, as this battle came and the struggle to and the contending for the faith developed in the 19th century against these assaults from uh, higher criticism in 19th and uh, German higher, uh, I mean German rationalism and uh, liberalism, then there was a response from the conservative Christian community, and that was really led by the theologians of Princeton Theological Seminary, which sort of became the bastion of orthodoxy in the area of understanding the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, and uh, the the great theologians that wrote and addressed this topic uh, were there at Princeton, and they led the charge. There were no, that, it wasn't restricted to Princeton. There were many, many others, but these were the, the, this was the bastion of, uh, of, of faith. You had men like uh, 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 Augustus Alexander, who's the founder of the theology department at what was originally the Law College of New Jersey and became uh, Princeton Theological Seminary. Uh, he taught Charles Hodge. Then Charles named his son, uh, after his mentor named his son, uh, um, a. A. went by A.A. A. Hodge, Augustus Alexander Hodge, and then his son was Casper Hodge, and then one of his students was also one of Charles Hodge's students in later life was also Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, otherwise known as B.B. Warfield, and these were the great stalwarts of the faith in, through the 19th century. And so when we talk about the rise of fundamentalism, and I'll define that term in just a minute, uh, the first stream of influence that flowed into, into that river of fundamentalism was this theology of Princeton emphasizing the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture. Another stream that influenced uh, fundamentalism, although it was not restricted to it but was a heavy part of it, was the premillennialism that came from a consistent literal interpretation of Scripture uh, in the 19th century, various uh, different conservative groups, and especially as this this crystallized into the new dispensational uh, theology, and you have various uh, Bible conferences at the end of the 19th century where these conservative thinkers and pastors and theologians got together and they would uh, stimulate one another by their preaching and by their teaching and by their relationship. This is part of the background to why we have Bible conferences like we do. The pre-trib rapture study group was a consciously developed conference to imitate what went on, for example, at the Niagara Bible conferences in the late 19th century. Uh, the Chafer Seminary Pastors Conference that we have, others. These are designed to to focus on the issues of the day and to give pastors and theologians and those who are specialists in particular areas uh, the opportunity to to focus on those and to stimulate other pastors so that we become better prepared to contend for the uh, for the faith. So uh, this premillennial. Premillennialism and dispensationalism was very much a part of this stream that leads into fundamentalism. And then a, 
then there was a third strand, which was just good, solid conservative theology that, that developed out of a set of books that was uh, written in the early 1900s uh, that came out between 1910 and 1915 that had been uh, commissioned to write articles and publish them in these 12 volumes, scholarly articles at the highest level of scholarship addressing the challenges that came from 19th century liberalism. And this set of books, it was a 12-volume set of books, was called The Fundamentals of Christianity. And it was to be a, tw- it was a 12 volume study. And then in the, uh, after that had come out and on the basis of that, another man by the name of Curtis Lee Laws, uh, coined the term fundamentalist. Fundamentalists were those who believed in the fundamentals. And I wanted to just show you a little bit of this right now. So I'm going to switch over to, let me see, Lagos Bible Software and put this over here onto the screen so you can look at this. So I've got two different things I want to show you. The first has to do with this, the book of, uh, this is the Fundamentals of the Faith. These are these 12 volumes that have been, that were later uh, republished as a um, four-volume set. And I just thought I would read the preface to you to give you a little bit of an understanding of this. In 1909, God moved two Christian uh, laymen to set aside a large sum of money for issuing 12 volumes that would set forth the fundamentals of the Christian faith and which were to be sent then free of charge to ministers of the gospel, missionaries, Sunday school superintendents, and others engaged in aggressive Christian work throughout the English-speaking world. A committee of men who were known to be sound in the faith, was chosen to have oversight of the publication of these volumes. Reverend Dr. A.C. Dixon was the first executive uh, secretary of the committee upon his departure for England, Reverend Lewis Meyer, blah, blah, blah. Let's go down here to this next line. We were able to bring out these 12 volumes according to the original plan. Some of the volumes were sent to 300,000 ministers and missionaries and other workers in different parts of the world. On the completion of the 12 volumes, as originally planned, the work was uh, continued through uh, the King's Business, that's a publishing firm in Los Angeles. Although a larger number of volumes were issued than there were names on our mailing list, at last the stock became exhausted, but appeals for them kept coming in from different parts of the world. As the fund was no longer available for this purpose, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, that's Biola, B-I-O-L-A, Bible Institute of Los Angeles, uh, to whom the plates were turned over when the committee closed its work, had decided to bring out the various articles that appeared in the fundamentals in four volumes at the cheapest price possible. All the articles that appeared in the fundamentals, with the exception of a very few, are in this series. So that's the uh, opening preface. And then we have my pinwheel of death here, so that makes we have to pause a minute. But this was set up to, to communicate uh, scholarly articles in defense of the faith. Now, in the process, at the same time, there was a group of uh, Presbyterians in the uh, conservatives in the Northern Presbyterian uh, denomination, Southern Presbyterian churches. Most denominations in the U.S. split uh, at the time of the American Civil War. And so in the uh, the northern denominations were the ones that came under the assault from liberalism uh, the most at the beginning. And then, um, uh, let's see, I can't do anything. That's locked up. Uh, and then, uh, so in the north, they began to uh, identify what are the fundamentals. And in their view, there were five fundamentals of the faith. The inerrancy of the Bible is the first, because that's the foundation. That's the authority of Scripture. Second, the literal nature of the biblical accounts, especially regarding Christ's miracles and the creation account in Genesis. So they understood the, these first two are so important. One understands that the basis for authority is an inerrant original, the inerrant Scripture. And then second, we have uh, the literal hermeneutic, a literal uh, nature of the biblical accounts, especially with regard to miracles and creation. Third, the virgin birth of Christ. Fourth, the bodily resurrection and physical return of Christ. And then uh, notice that the literal physical return of Christ to the earth. And then last, the substitutionary atonement 
of Christ on the cross. These are the five fundamentals. So if you were to boil Christianity down to the five fundamentals or ten fundamentals, what would make your list? Give that some thought, discussion, and uh, see what you end up with. I just wanted to show you the table of contents. Uh, one of the things you should note is is the level of education of many of these writers, and they come from uh, the United States. They came from Great Britain. They had uh, a master's degree, which was very high in, at that time in history. We have degree uh, inflation today. So today a, a bachelor's degree is about as equivalent to a high school degree 100 years ago, and a master's degree is equivalent to about a bachelor's degree 100 years ago and so on. So they have like the history of higher criticism, the mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, uh, fallacies of higher criticism, the Bible in modern criticism, the Holy Scriptures and Modern Negations uh, by James Orr, who was an uh, absolutely brilliant scholar at the turn of the century, Christ and Criticism by Sir Robert Anderson, also a brilliant writer and author uh, during that time, uh, Old Testament Criticism and the New Testament Christianity by W.H. Griffith Thomas from, from Canada. He was Anglican. He was supposed to be the original professor of systematic theology at Dallas Seminary, but he died the summer before the first term at Dallas Seminary in 1924, so Lewis Berry Chafer had to take his place. Uh, this just gives you a little bit of an idea of what was included here, and I'm going to go ahead and stop here. We'll pick this up a little bit in the next, in the next lesson. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be uh, reminded that, they, that you have revealed yourself to us uh, without error uh, in an infallible revelation that has been collected uh, and translated for us in the scriptures, and that we have uh, we have the orig- uh, an understanding of the original text because of the way you oversaw the transmission of the text, and we can have confidence in the truth of your word of what we have, and that this should transform our lives. We pray this in Christ's name, Amen.